To have passion in life is everything. What's your Everest? Oh, is it yeah. that 200 inch box? They just look so impressive when they're wide. Especially running away. <laughs> Welcome to this week's episode of Eastman's Elevated. It's like a think tank for outdoor activity. Sounds exactly like my hunting. Just always thinking about it, always trying to evolve it and make it better. Here's your host, Brian Barney. Hey, what's happening, guys? I got a brand new episode of Eastman's Elevated for you. So this week on the podcast, I have on my buddy Miguel Morales. Um, Miguel's just a great guy. Um, I met Miguel through social media. The guy had just been killing some giant coos deer. And and then um, I traveled down to Arizona with Dan, and Miguel reached out and drove like over an hour to meet with us just to share information out and help us on the hunt. So he's just a great guy. I spent time with him down in Arizona, helped on the hunt, shared vantage points and, and locations, and and then just a, a straight killer with a bow in his hands. Um, man, he has killed seven coos deer in a row with his bow and giant ones. And then he's also killed mule deer and elk, antelope. He killed a giant bear in southern Arizona. So um, the guy is super passionate about bow hunting, and he's really good at it. So this is a fun podcast. I think you guys will enjoy it. Uh, sponsor for today's podcast, uh, Onyx Maps. So they're new to Eastman's Elevated, but they are not new to me. Um, I have lived and died behind this app. Uh, I absolutely love Onyx Maps. You can look at topography. You can look at at uh, like Google Earth imagery. You can look at um, overlays, private and public. You can tell exactly where you are, exactly where to walk. You can get chips that plug into your GPS or you can get on their phone app service, which is what I like. Like I can actually see the screen on my phone and not only does it help me navigate or find spots, but like during the hunt, I can look at this Onyx maps and, and see which basins I need to go to or which vantage points work best. And I can I can change things in real time by looking at the app, but it, it abs- absolutely helps me on every hunt I do, um, not only keeping legal, but harvesting game. Just an awesome app and an awesome company. So Onyx Maps, make sure to check those guys out. Um, yeah, and over there at Eastman's, gosh, I sat down and recorded a, a podcast with Reekers the other day. That one went good. Um, yeah, just recording some podcasts and um, going to do a, a tour this summer. We're going to go to a couple different places and record podcasts. I've got some sponsored ones coming up and, and then just some, some great guests and some great content. So just really excited at where everything's headed and, and uh, excited to keep working away and improving at it. So um, here's the podcast. So it's me and Miguel Morales, Eastman's Elevated. Here we go. All right, I'm live here with Miguel Morales. Um, he's my buddy. He lives down um, in Nogales, so right on the Arizona border. And we met a couple years ago through social media, kept in touch, and then we were able to get together this year when I was down there hunting. So thanks for being on, Miguel. Hey, appreciate the invite. Yeah. Um, boy, I sure had a great time with you down there in the desert, and, and uh, I've been following you for a while, and I remember the first time I met you, you sent me over a couple pictures of the, some of the coos deer you'd killed. And man, oh man, are you dialed in on those coos deer. So uh, I saw another one that you harvested this year, and I think that's um, seven in a row over 100 inches. Am I right there, Miguel? Yeah. Yeah, I've been, I've been pretty fortunate these past, these past years. I'm, I'm pretty, pretty happy about that. Oh man, that is a feat. That is something to be proud of. Those those coos deer are one of the hardest species that I've ever hunted, that I've ever glassed for. Those things are so switched on. So for you to be able to spot and stalk those seven years in a row and kill a mature one, a really mature one over a hundred inches, is just incredible to me, Miguel. You know, uh, one thing that that you know, it's, it just seems like. After after doing this for a while and, and, you know, you get all these people that, oh, man, you're going to do it again next year. And, you know, sometimes you start believing it and then you start the hunt and then reality sets in and you get humbled by those things. And then you just kind of have to revert back to what what you've always known and kind of start from square one just about every time for me. But uh, fortunately, I have a, a lot of time to try and put something together. Um, I'm with you there. I, I know it. Um, yeah, that's like with mule deer, elk, or any of those tough species, especially on public land. Yeah. Sometimes I get caught up in that as well, where every year, you know, I think it's, 
I'm, I'm going to shoot this giant buck and then I get out there and it's a lot tougher than I imagine or a lot tougher than I, than I think it's going to be. You know, there's, there's different hurdles as far as weather conditions or maybe I mess a couple opportunities up, but it always seems like you've got to start fresh and those, that, that next coos deer has no idea about the deer that you've shot and killed. You have to get that one right. Exactly. The, the one that's coming doesn't care what you've done before. Man, it's it's switched on and it's ready to go. Yeah, for sure. Well, I I sure enjoy um, hunting in that that country that you're down in down there. Just that that southern desert country, and and you've been real successful down there on coos deer, but also um, you've got a giant muley that you harvested down there, and um, you're always shooting javelina. And then I. I, I think you had an article in Eastman's with a, a big bear you shot down there. That's kind of wild for down south. You know, yeah, they, um, I actually the title of that was A Bear in the Desert. And, you know, when, when I got him back to the truck, you looked at the thermometer and it said 107. And it was a spring bear hunt that we have down here. And uh, they're tough and it was grueling. That wasn't spot and stock. That was sitting over water. But, you know, that's really the only way to get them. They get in those deep canyons, and you really can't get on them any other way. Okay, they get in those thick canyons, and so then um, you you try to hone in or uh, try to focus on those water holes and then um, sit, and I, I bet it takes a bunch of hours sitting in a stand like that or sitting in a, a blind. Well, you know, one, one thing that kind of helps us out is it, when the temperatures start hitting 100 degrees, there's like a, a, a small window where things start hitting 100 degrees, the days hit 100 degrees, and it's right before the monsoons. And those are the, that's the small window that you really want to take, uh, take advantage of, because uh, they start hitting the water pretty regularly throughout the day. You know, they got all that fur, and then most of the time, especially sometimes we have a lot of mines and stuff, and the water that seeps out of there is actually cold. I mean, it's cold to the touch. So they'll get in there and swim and stuff like that. It's it's pretty neat. Oh, okay. Um, over 100 degrees might be the best time to hunt a bear, but that's got to be brutal in that uh, sitting in that tent like that. That thing's got to be 120, 130 in there, huh? Well, uh, the way that I did it is because it was in the, in a, in those steep canyons, I just kind of got up on the side of the canyon, and um, but I did have a set lock suit on, and that really made a difference for me that uh, I was able to um get in there spray down and then put on that set lock suit and just kind of sit throughout the day and uh that one came in the one that i shot came in early it was about uh seven eight o'clock something like that and was able to put them on the ground but there was a lot a lot of days where i went out there sat in the heat and nothing so you know just don't know but that set lock suit really made a difference. Oh, huh. Yeah, you believe in it, huh? I believe in, um, especially with bears, right? They can smell a hundred times what a bloodhound can. So, yeah, uh, anything you can do to, to help your scent out um, it definitely uh, is advantageous. But, yeah, that, that blind had to get pretty hot, though, sitting there in the day. You have it in the shade somewhere where you get uh, a breeze going by. But, yeah, I know those things are hot, like even in 60, 70-degree weather. Well, I, I didn't sit in a blind. I just kind of set up, you know, kind of like a pit blind type of deal. Oh, okay, I got gotcha. you. But uh, it was pretty high up on the, pretty high up on the on the canyon wall. It was pretty steep. So basically, when I took a shot at that bear, the cams of the bow were in between my legs, type of deal. <laughs> gotcha. Yeah, <laughs> that's a steep shot. Um, yeah, yeah, I understand. So it was like a homemade blind, like you dug into the hillside, so that you weren't like sitting in an actual tent blind. Right. Okay. There, gotcha. I mean, you couldn't set one up because the angle that that everything was at, there's there's no way you you'd be there digging for a long time just to try and get that thing level. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You, you know what I'm saying? I do. It's, yeah. So it's. It was uh, one of those experiences where, I mean, I really, you know, I killed a pretty nice one. I think he ended up scoring like 20 and a quarter. And uh, after that, uh, I think I'm like, well, I'm pretty much done with those bears because it, it is miserable to sit in that heat. 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, that you get um, a long time to hunt coos deer there, so probably in that early season where I've seen you've harvested some of those really nice velvet ones, those were probably early season hot weather like that, not that January kind of that colder season, huh? Well, um, the only one that I really harvested was the one from last year, and um, that one, it was uh, I had an antelope tag, so I ended up filling my antelope tag, and then about uh, a week later, I went out and uh, and started chasing coos. But it was that was kind of like a, you know, for the lack of a better term, kind of a gimme. Um, I was out there with my daughter. We were going to start glassing, and he just kind of came out from the bottom. It wasn't really, it was a, it was, it was a longer shot, but uh, but he, it was just an area where I've normally seen some pretty nice bucks. And uh, he presented a shot and took it, you know, type of deal. So that was one of my easier ones, but it's definitely, uh, it was definitely hot. You know, you got to worry about, you know, the meat and everything else. So it's, uh, it's, there's a lot that you, <laughs> you can't be messing around. You know I mean? It's, it's like, it's time to get them gutted and try and get them set up for the photo or whatever. And, and so the, the meat doesn't spoil. Yeah. You got to get them out of there quick. I bet. Um, so you, you do most of yeah. your coos hunting then, um, during that, that January rut season then, huh? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's where I've had most luck. Okay. Yeah. It sure is. And usually. Go ahead. Sorry, Miguel. Usually it was during that time frame from, you know, about the, yeah, I'm sorry. Late, you know, like the 18th through the 24th, 25th is usually when I, when I get, you know, the, the luckiest. That's when I've gotten the bulk of my of my coos. Okay, and that's when a lot of the action happens, a lot of the rut action too. Yeah, that's exactly it. I mean, um, my my favorite scenario is when when you know the big buck has a, a doe that he's tending, and he'll have one, two, maybe three bucks that are kind of you know trying to get in on the action, and he's chasing them around, and as long as that doe is where she's kind of hidden, where she can't see that well. Those bucks aren't going anywhere, and you can you can get away with a lot. Okay, those those bucks are going to keep with that doe no matter what, and so you just have to try not to spook the doe, and then you're in pretty good shape. Yeah, because I mean those those bucks they're they're worried about themselves. You know, they're worried about the other. You know, the big bucks worried about the little ones. The little ones is trying not to get a horn in their rear end. And, uh, you know, that leaves a lot of room for, for being able to get away with movement and stuff like that. Yeah. And you were saying those, um, those coos deer have, have a big deer attitude that you've actually seen or heard of those coos deer fighting with mule deer and running mule deer off. Yes. Oh yeah. (laughs) That's crazy, Miguel. Yeah. Those, those mule deer, they just kind of start walking the other direction, you know, when, when, when the little coos start strutting. (laughs) <laughs> that would be funny to see yeah so they've got quite an attitude on them uh yeah it's not the size of the dog in the fight it's the the fight in the dog right right exactly yeah that's crazy huh well yeah and they um so those those bucks they're really territorial and they they move around through their gosh they're one of the hardest species i've ever hunted uh, that's why i'm 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 so um, I asked so many questions about them. You have so much knowledge. You've hunted them your whole life down there, right? Pretty much, pretty much. You know, I mean, you know, my dad's hunted them. Usually, we hunted them with a with a rifle when I was when I was younger, and uh, started picking up. You know, when I started hunting with a bow, I kind of started with a mule deer. Felt they were a little bit easier, and then uh, got a couple with the bow, uh, tails with a bow, and then uh, just Whatever I was in a mode where whatever whatever I saw nice, that's what I would go after, and then I kind of started focusing more on the whitetails. Okay, and and your tactic is when you're stalking those whitetails is you set up on prime vantages, and uh, you, you've got a bunch of different mountain ranges that you hunt kind of locally that that you can go to, and you set up on those vantage points, and then um, you know you use uh, the big eyes is what you call them, and so you've got two Swarovski scopes, and you've had a plate made, 
and then both of those Swarovski scopes uh, mount to that, and then that's you look through both scopes as you're looking. It's an amazing system, Miguel. Yes, it's basically just a, a big binos is what they are. Giant binos. Yeah. Yeah. And then what are the power of magnification you have on the eyepieces again? It used to be that I had like a fixed 20 power. Yep. And then I had a 20 to 60 zoom just to kind of see what was going on. See, you know, wanted to get a close up look. But since then, I've switched over to the 25 to 50 zoom wide angle. And it's worked pretty decent. You know, it kind of cuts down a little bit on the weight, I guess, and stuff like that. But it works out pretty decent. Yeah, it's crazy. Well, the those coos, they're so perfect for those coos because they are the toughest deer to spot. They blend in perfectly with their landscape. And then a lot of times you're glassing a, a ton of country. And even though there's a lot of whitetails down there, it doesn't seem like they're just everywhere you look. Like you really have to pick that landscape apart. And then you might see, you know, a doe with a, a couple does with a buck or a couple groups here and there, but they're not everywhere. And that's glassing miles and miles out. Like sometimes you're spotting those deer two, three miles away. Way. yes exactly mm-hmm. and i think it has to do more with um you know like sometimes especially like if it's early early morning that the sun is not out yet they're probably bedded you know they're kind of they're kind of like us if it's cold outside they don't want to move around too much once the sun starts hitting them you know then it kind of they start moving around a little bit more and they're more visible um sometimes it kind of seems like you know sometimes those moon charts kind of also they have a little bit of role in that. I, I you know, I, I don't really believe in them, but I also look at them. If, you know, I, I don't hunt, I don't just hunt when, when they say it's prime time. I'll hunt early morning, late evening, but if it says, hey, prime time is going to be the middle of the day, well, I'll stay out there then too and kind of look around and see what I see. Okay, and you're going off, uh, what did you say, like moon moon phases? Yeah, the you know, how... Um, You'll have there's certain apps and stuff like that that'll say you know prime time, best time, best feeding time, you know, and then good feeding times and stuff like that. Um, it's it, it's not always spot on, but you know it's it's helped me out more than once where it's if they say that you know they're going to be out during the middle of the day, you might want to stay out and and keep on glassing, you know. Okay, so you've seen enough correlation between it when you have stayed out when they tell you is the best time to see them, and and then you'll spot some coos or it will be good. So you 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 have seen some signs that that moon phases do affect them. And I know those whitetail guys, like my buddy Clint there in Ohio, he's crazy about that moon, and he he thinks it has a lot to do with it. Now, like you, he's hunting whether it's a good moon or a bad moon, but he really believes in it. Yeah, I mean, like I said, you know, it's it's one of those deals where you know, if you're not gonna you're not gonna kill something on your couch. So, if they say that it's gonna be good, you might as well stay out a little bit longer and kind of see what see what you can bring up. Oh, absolutely. Well, and I should probably pay more attention. I I'm kind of like uh, what you stated first. Like I don't. You know, I haven't really bought into them at all, but I haven't really paid attention or looked into it too much either, you know, and so I've just kind of had like a, a blinder or turned a blind eye to it and just kind of hasn't paid attention to it. But I, it's got to, you know, the way it affects uh, different things uh, and the whitetail guys believe in it so much and how it affects the tides and, you know, the the moon has a like it and it definitely makes a difference like when animals are feeding. I have noticed that like the fuller the moon, the better they can see the the more they'll be out feeding during the night, you know, and then correct. And then um, so I have seen that, but I haven't really bought into it too much. But I should really pay attention as, as it may coincide with like some of the elk running around here. And it's just like, um, you know, even if it, it, it you're just trying to get everything in your favor, it's so difficult to harvest animals that, yeah, if that played a small role in in being successful or knowing that animals are out, um, it definitely uh, pay dividends to pay attention to it. Yeah, I think so. I mean, like I said, every little bit helps. You know, sometimes all it takes is just that little extra, you know, five minutes of you glassing instead of just packing it up and and taking it in where you see that big buck or you see, you know, something that, you know, tells you, hey, maybe we should stay out here a little bit longer. 
Oh yeah, yeah, it it is, and it's sometimes it's it's weird to even think about because it can happen so quick, or like you say, it can just be the difference of five minutes of staying out there later. You know, just keep glassing there five minutes or looking back at that spot one more time and you may just turn up that buck that you're looking for and then you know to focus on that area. Um, so so you're right. Um, even though I try to say, you know, there, there isn't a lot of luck involved, there is a lot of luck involved. You know, it's, uh, it's part of hunting, that's for sure. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's – and, you know, there's something to be said. The more time you spend out there, the more luck you create for yourself. You know, that's – that's reality. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so what made you start hunting those coos with a bow? You started with mule deer, and then you just had an idea to hunt coos. Like, you're one of the only guys that I know that has harvested coos consistently with their bow. It's so impressive, Miguel. You know, it's it, – you always see some nice mule deer bucks, you know, but – it's really difficult to see those really big bucks, you know, out here. You know, I shot the one that I killed. He he scored, you know, about 180 gross. You know, great deer anywhere you go. But you don't see you don't see a lot of those. I mean, that's kind of like it's kind of like shooting something that's 200 inches or 210 someplace else, you know. And you know, for me, it's kind of like it's a lot easier for me to find a big coos deer even though it might be harder to kill them. But at least if I see them, I have a chance. With mule deer, you know, you see those 140, 150s. You know, most times you might see a 160, um, but they're fewer and far between. So you kind of have to, those those bigger bucks are fewer and far between as far as mule deer goes. So you're not going to get a chance at actually going after something if you don't see something that you want to shoot, you know. So... For me, that's kind of why I started sticking to the to the whitetails because I was seeing, you know, some pretty nice whitetails. You know, you see something 100 inches with a bow, it's like it's kind of tough to say no. And lately, you know, the last few have been closer to the 110 mark. So, you know, we'll see what happens, we'll see how it goes. I don't know how much longer this streak will go, but I mean, it's just it's just about having having a good time and staying out there and. You know, if you shoot the first buck that you see, well, your hunting time's going to be cut pretty short. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, it's just you enjoying, you know, what you have around you there, where you live and where you've grown up and where you're raising your family. And it's it's so neat that you have so many different places that are just a, a short drive away from, from your house or from your town that you can get into just world-class coups. And, yeah, you've... The last couple have been 110. I think you've got some that are close to 120 as well. And then you've told me about bucks that are even bigger than that. So you do just have some world-class coups down there, and they are, are so fun and challenging to chase. And so when you spot those bucks and then you're making a game plan, a lot of times um, you, you have a buddy keep an eye on that buck or you'll call in a friend. Isn't that usually how you do it or, or, or a lot of your hunts solo, Miguel? It just kind of depends, you know, I mean, it, like on this, on when, on this last buck, I ended up seeing him once, when I first saw him, I saw him by myself, tried to put a sneak on him, but um, just kind of, kind of made me out, the doe kind of made me out, and I just didn't want to push him too, too much. The second time... Um, I, I called a friend of mine and, and uh, he kept an eye on it. And it was one of those things where, you know, I kind of have these, you know, some of these things that I, my little rules or whatever about, hey, if I get within this distance, I just need to stay there and let the buck do the rest. And sure enough, if I just would have stayed where I was, where I was, I would have gotten a shot, you know. And what ended up happening was that this doe had bedded behind this ocotillo. She couldn't see me. The buck was bedded further into the cut. And I was kind of, these cuts kind of came off of this ridge. And I was, you know, two cuts further, you know, two cuts further over where I could see the doe, but I couldn't see the buck. So I figured, you know what? I can probably make my way around to the next one. Will put me about 30 yards closer and I should have a, a better, 
a better chance at the buck because I that way I could see where the actual cut came out into the wash type of deal. You know what I mean? This, I do. I'm am following, I kind of making yeah. sense? Yep, absolutely. So <clears throat> when I started making that move, that buck decided that it was time to get up and start moving. And sure enough, he caught me red-handed, you know, out in the open, you know, and he took off. And, and at that point, I'm like, man, I can't believe that I did that, you know, and it's like, you know, here I am thinking that I can get away with murder. And, you know, I just I got slapped back to reality pretty quick, you know, got humbled real quick. So, you know, the, the last time that I saw him, he was by himself and um, he was kind of cruising so I kind of saw the direction that he was heading, and I just kind of, kind of hit him off. And you know, I when I shot him, it's he was at, at the very end of the rut. They seem to be a little bit more lax because they're just kind of tired, and they're kind of you could tell that they've been running around a lot. You know, their 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 legs kind of kind of hurt a little bit, and I think that's why he gave me the chance that he did. You know, he couldn't quite make out what I was. And by that time, I had ranged him and set the sight, and he let me draw on him, which normally he he wouldn't have done, and he took the arrow like a champ. <laughs> oh, so. good for you. Um, yeah, that is so cool, Miguel. Yeah, so you... Um, you said something at the very beginning too, that is so important. And you told me when I was hunting down there too. Um, and, and it's a tactic that I use on mule deer as well, as I always say, let them make the last mistake or let them make the last move. And so, so what you said is you snuck into a certain range. And so you've got a range that you like to get in on these coos deer and it's right on the outside of your bow ranger, uh, at the longer distances. And then you like to just sneak into that range and then you just wait and just let things happen and you just figure they're coos deer and it's the coos rut and more times than not or you know a, a a lot of times that buck will end up circling around that doe or moving up by you or moving into a position where then you can get even closer yet um so that was the tactic that you told me when i went down there hunting as well and and something that you did that that's paid off for you a bunch on those things right exactly that's exactly what i do but like I said, you know, I got greedy. You know, it's like I believed into the hype. I started making my move, and pff, I got busted like a rookie. <laughs> oh, those so. things will catch you, too. They will <laughs> humble you, right? I mean, it's uh, they don't let you get away with much, that's for sure. Oh, no, nah, they don't. I mean, he as soon as he made me, it wasn't long before that tail was up, and he was gone. You know, that doe didn't even know what was going on. He's the one that made me, and he took off. And when I saw that, I'm like, oh, man, this is this is going to be the buck that's going to give me gray hairs. So but fortunately, you know, I mean, I was able and, and actually it was the last day of the hunt that I ended up catching him slipping, you know. Yeah, the so, the very last day of the season, I I got that text from from you. I was so excited for you. You you'd said that, yeah, I'll go out and hunt a little bit, but I'm kind of thinking about putting in for mule deer. But I saw that coos come across, and I thought, yeah, there's <laughs> no way Miguel can let that one walk. That's a heck of a nice buck. No, I was so happy for you, man. That's so cool. Well, I'm uh, thank you, thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah, well, it almost takes hunting those things just to 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 get the the feeling or have the respect for them that they deserve because they are such a wily little deer you know they they're just so switched on they blend in so well they're a real challenge and that's why i love coming down there every year and i'm i'm absolutely hooked on it and uh you you've been extremely nice and helped me out too you um you read that you've read that coos article that i that i wrote in there and i I really should have called you before I wrote that. You are the expert on those things, but uh, you've you've always been extremely nice and supportive. And when I was down there this year, you you looked me up, and then we got a chance to hunt together, which was really nice, Miguel. Yeah, you know, I I, I kind of wish I would have. I, I didn't quite know exactly when you came down, and you were kind of down there in the area, and you know maybe we could have snuck in a few more days. But um, but yeah, it was a good time, and it's. It's definitely fun to see other people put a stock on animals and things of that nature. 
Yeah, well, I I can't wait for next season. Um, yep, I'm gonna be knocking down your door to come down there again. I love that place down there. It's and it's beautiful landscape too, and uh, beautiful weather that time of year. It's just such a fun season to hunt. Yeah, I mean, you can't beat the weather, especially if you're coming from Montana. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> you know, it's 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 just a, a really neat time of year when you get to see really what the what the land has i mean usually when you get into those november october hunts um they they stay pretty well hidden you know i mean you don't get to see the amount of deer that you do during january time frame but um it's it's just just a lot of fun i really have a good time yeah well and it's um such specialized tactics for those coos deer you know as you use the big eyes and the vantage points the the spot and stock and then um and and then also you work really hard on your shooting you work on your shooting year round um and you're a really good shot miguel and you really uh pay attention to the details on your bow um just the the tolerances of everything uh are really slight and you you really know your your bow tuning and and um it was really fun to talk bows with you while i was down there so that's a big part of your game is having your shooting absolutely on point and you'd almost rather shoot a little bit longer shot on those coups than than a than a shorter shot on those things as they do jump strings and things right well uh, yes one of the things that i've noticed is is that um you know the closer you're in there it seems like those have been my worst hunts my worst shots you know even though i was able to recover them it just seems like it just man it's they they they're so unforgiving and for some reason they do it it just kind of makes things more complicated for me if i can just step back a little bit further and i then i can relax and i can see that the deer is relaxed you know i can take my time to take the shot you know i mean it's it's just like if you're at the practice butts, you know, just, okay, squeeze, squeeze until it goes off rather than, okay, I got this little window. <laughs> I'm 20 yards away. Man, it's just, it's, for me, it's a, it's a lot more, it's a lot easier to be able to get the, uh, the shot off at the longer distance than trying to, you know, cram a shot in at closer and, you know, something bad happening or something like that. I mean, I know people might say, the opposite but in my experience you know i mean i i have a four fletch which is really uh, on my arrows which is really quiet so they really don't hear the zinging of the arrow coming through the air um i really uh practice a lot at the further distance so i know i'm dialed in perfectly i mean it's when i when the shot goes off it's like you know i know it's going to hit if it i'm surprised if it doesn't type of thing yeah well um yeah you spend an extreme amount of time working with your equipment getting familiar with it knowing where the arrows are and and i share that same mentality with you too miguel like uh in in the mule deer world you know to try to sneak to 20 or 30 yards on those mule deer you end up getting busted a whole lot more than if you just hold up inside that effective range where you know you can make that shot you know sneaking into that you know that 40 50 60 is like where i really feel good in there and so if i can sneak into there like i don't need to get closer i know i can make that shot and, and when i do s- slip up closer like uh, i i'm more apt to spook that deer out of his bed or like you said forcing an arrow in i i've made worse shots at closer yardages because i seem to sit on my shot when i know it's a you know a longer distance where that's necessary like a 40 50 60 or even further but the the close shots, like you almost try to rush it, hurry now, or you got a small window, or he knows you're there, gets up, and you don't get an exact yardage. Like I, I like them to be relaxed, and in best case scenario, they don't know I'm there. But you've always got to have an exact yardage. Like I, I've got to have an exact yardage, whether I'm 32 or whether I'm 66. I got to know the exact yardage, and and from those longer distances, I'm able to get in there and then make sure I get a a precise yardage and sit on my shot and execute so i'm with you there i i share a lot of the the same thoughts on on getting close and spot and stalking and especially down where you're at in that desert
desert terrain, um, it, it's really crunchy down there, or it can be right at the end of your stock. And you just you let those coos deer, if those coos deer know that you're there, the game's up. I mean, you might get a shot, but most likely probably not, you know. So you, you definitely want to slip in and be undetected, you know, and then try to wait and let something happen. Yeah, no, exactly. And I mean, as far as like, you know, bow equipment is concerned, you know, a lot of people think, oh, well, you tune a bow to make it more accurate. Well, that's not really the case. I mean, if you put a bow on a on a shooting machine, as long as you draw it to the exact same place and you shoot the exact same arrow out of it in the exact same orientation, it'll put that arrow in the same hole at 20 yards every time. What you're trying to do with that tuning is make it more forgiving so that when it has variations, it still hits the same spot, you know, as close as possible. And that's one of the things that I try and do with my tuning is I try and get it to where, you know, for example, I do a lot of uh, creep tuning where if I pull a little bit more or I'm not quite all the way back, it still hits pretty much in the same spot. You know, do a lot of yoke tuning for the left and the rights. Um, it's just constantly making sure that you know i'm testing the bow testing myself trying to get those those good groups you know and and the other thing that really makes a big difference is you know i i shoot longer stabilizers i mean it's basically a target setup you know and i got a one pin sight you know i mean it's it's really nice with those b stingers that you can you can add down to an ounce on where it's going to make the most amount of difference and you know uh with 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 a one pin sight that I have, basically dial it down to the yard, and you know you you get your yardages and you know I use those uh, those archery programs to set my sight tapes and you know it, it gets to the point like I said you know I mean it's you're kind of surprised when it doesn't hit and that's that's the goal that's the confidence that you need. Yeah. Oh, you touched on so many great things there, Miguel. I gotta circle back a lot of those. The same things I do, like, um, and, and just your, your your thought process of of trying to make the most forgiving bow you can make, and you did a really good job of explaining that, like a like a hooter shooter. Every time it puts the arrow in the same hole because the the same pressure on the grip, the same pressure on the draw, everything's the same, and it shoots. And, and that's what you know you're trying to accomplish a forgiving setup. So when you make a little mistake, you pull harder into your bow, you pull less into your back wall. Your grip is a little left or a little right. Like you grip a bow the same every time, but it's amazing shooting through paper, even the variance you can get there. And so you're trying to tune that bow and find the 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 most the the most forgiving setup it can. So when you make a little mistake, that arrow still hits as close to that hole as possible. Um, I just thought that was a, a, a great a great school of thought on that, Miguel. Well, and, and the other thing is, is that I, I also tune the arrows. And, and that's something that I don't know how many people do, but, you know, Tim Gillingham from, from Gold Tip, he's a wealth of knowledge, and he has videos showing where you have people – well, where he actually shoots each arrow, and he normally shoots a four-fletch, so he'll shoot them at each vein setting to see where he has the, the, the same tear for all the arrows that he's shooting. And that's kind of what I do with mine. I, I kind of do it with a bare shaft, so I try and get bullet holes with all the, my hunting arrows before I fletch them. I mark them. And that kind of also helps out with the accuracy standpoint. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that you can do. And obviously, you know, when the better the arrow that you buy, the easier it is type of thing. But all of them can use, can use a little bit of, you know, tuning of some sort, you know. Okay. I mean, basically, it's like you spin the arrow, you cut off the, the, you, you cut it to where you keep the straightest part of the shaft, you know, and then, you kind of go through and weight sort them so that you put the heaviest shaft with the lightest inserts and then kind of go with, you know, heaviest arrow with the lightest points and, and, and things of that nature to try and get the, the tolerances down. And there's, there's a lot people can do, especially if they do their own, 
you know, fletching, their own cutting and things of that nature. Oh, I love your attention to detail, Miguel. And that's why you can shoot those longer distances and why it's an asset for you. Like, you know, you can make the shot because you spend so much time with your equipment. So I've got to just keep circling back because you're making such <laughs> great points. Like, okay, so cutting the arrow shaft, you're cutting the straightest part of the arrow shaft. So what that means is don't just cut the front of the arrow off, cut both the back and the front of the arrow off in equal distances to get your arrow length. Uh, Miguel well, is... actually, I, I don't, I don't mean to cut you off, but there yep. has been times where it's not just the absolute middle. Like there's some arrows, especially when you when you get into sometimes the lower grades. Sometimes one end will be straighter than the other. Like I have uh, uh, the uh, spine tester, and it has rollers, and I just kind of measure it, and it, I just move it, move the shaft around on that until I get the straightest part of the shaft, and those labels they don't always match up you know what i mean because some you cut a little bit more off the front some cut a little bit more off the back some you just cut up you know equal on both sides so the labels don't always match for me anyways yeah so it's 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 pretty well you're pretty uh good knowledge to to kind of pass along i'd say you're taking it to a further level than i'm taking it miguel because yeah i was just always told that the center part of the shaft was the straightest part but you're actually taking each shaft and testing it and then cutting the straightest part so yeah no you're just taking it to another level but then you also uh the weight sorting is such a big deal the the grains of arrow weight make such a such a difference in in impact of those arrows and so weighing all your arrows and like you say matching up the the heavier shafts with the lighter components because what you're trying to do is get a good middle weight um where all those arrows will weigh and then um you know you're also finding your spine from this archery program like uh the one i use archer's advantage and you plug in all the specifics about your bow and about your arrow and it'll give you the exact cut on your arrow that is the perfect spine for your bow so it isn't going off a chart or getting close like it finds the the best spine that will react to your bow and and um, which is hard to test for. Like you could take that to another level as well, testing those spines and making sure. But you're just looking for a, a forgiving rip through paper. But yeah, so many great points there, Miguel. And then um, you were talking about some of your your um, tuning that you're doing. I like your creep tuning. I haven't done that. And so um, what you're saying is, is when you're shooting your bow. Like uh, if you pull harder into the back wall, like your your arrow hits at a different point. And so somehow you're tuning your bow to make those points similar. So even when you pull harder or when you pull, you know, less on your back wall, yeah, yeah exactly. it, it hits, you know, close to the same spot. spot. So how are you doing that, Miguel? You know, uh, basically, it's just like you said, they have um, – you're basically – uh, pulling back hard into the wall and then like one is where you where you hit the wall like you normally shoot and on the hoits you know you ju- on the second sh- on the second string you kind of pull harder into the stops to kind of try and get a uh, uh, see if there's a difference and sometimes I'll do it all the way out to about 90 yards and and sometimes you're just moving uh, just a little bit on the yokes, like half a half a turn on the yokes. And for example, if um, if you're uh, so like let's say you shoot a normal shot, and then if if you you shoot the hard shot, you creep uh, and it, and the the creep forward type of shot is kind of like where you normally shoot. If if um, the regular shot kind of hits high. You kind of shorten the bus cable or lengthen the, the control cable mm-hmm. and opposite if it hits low. But uh, one thing that I've noticed with the Hoyts is that it, it doesn't take very much for it to go one way or the other. You know, I mean, it's 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 a very it's a fine tuning process that it takes a little bit of time to kind of make sure that they're all good shots and, and, and things of that nature. Okay, but, that's um, that's cool. Yeah, so I get the I I get the premise behind it now. So you're actually you're you're cam timing the way your cams are, are leaving the string and you're messing correct. with that to find the most forgiving setup in there in your tune. So you're not just tuning them where they're both hard against the stops 
or I mean you are, but you're taking it even farther into to fine tuning the way those cams are leaving, and, and uh, so so that affects how your creep tunes. That's amazing. Yeah, and then you know, like you'll also sometimes I do a little bit of torque tuning where it's kind of adjusting how far back the arrow rest is and 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 how it correlates to the sight. By you know you'll have a, a certain sweet spot where no matter if you put torque one way or the other, obviously not a lot. You know, I mean, you're not like putting the bow sideways, <laughs> but you induce torque to one side and the other, and it'll still pr- hit pretty much down the middle. Yeah, I've heard of that, the the torque tuning, and I haven't played around with that a whole bunch, but I have read about it and looked into it, and yeah, that it makes sense to me. Like, So that way, any way you torque your bow, the, the arrow still comes out of there and hits in the middle, um, so it's right. kind of wild to think about. But yeah, there's a... It, you know, and it's just it's spending time with your bow and it's shooting your bow and it it's trying to to practice the right way and then just trying to pick up knowledge, uh, you know, along the way from your buddies and and from your experiences and and then just messing with things on them, you know. So it's just a process, but but really it's you know it's practicing those shots that you're practicing over and over and and practicing right. Yeah, and I mean, and and as you practice, you know. One of the other things that I kind of like to do is is have the sights. You know, I, I shoot a, a spot hog, so I can actually set the sight to an actual sight setting. And if I see that it's that that sight setting that was hitting before isn't hitting right now, it kind of gives me an idea that hey, well maybe something's changing, maybe something isn't right. You know, um, is it me? You know, so it kind of gives me an idea to start looking for stuff. So I think that's also pretty important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah, those those mover sights. It, it's so nice to have a, a mover where you actually hold the pin right where you want to hit. There's no pin gapping. Yeah. You don't have a a 50 and 60 yard pin that then you're trying to shoot 55 and trying to hold them in the middle. You know, you have an actual pin that rolls up to a sight setting. And yeah, when you spend time with that sight setting and get get familiar and comfortable with it you trust it and and you know when you set that sight to to whatever range you set it at that arrow is going to hit in the middle um so yeah i i really like the movers and i like the multi-pin movers too you know it it shoves that pin a little bit further down you can get a little bit more distance out of it and i like um you know that if things happen quick that you're still ready to go and also like it for like judging distances but the single pin takes all the clutter away you're never going to aim off the the wrong pin with that setup oh yeah you know but you know kind of the other thing that i was saying is that if it's not hitting where you want it to it's a really good indicator that something might be wrong with your setup, that maybe your string might have stretched, especially if, like down here, that's one thing that you have to really pay attention to, especially during the August hunt and stuff like that. You can't leave it in the vehicle. You have to make sure that that bow is just as cool as you are because if that string starts stretching, you're off, and you're going to be off by quite a bit. Yeah, well, and I noticed mine just shooting it throughout the season, just the temperature difference, humidity, like it all plays a part in it. And so, yeah, I practice with my bow all the way through season. And and some days I'll go out and like you say, off my sight tape, that's usually spot on, I'll be a yard off and, you know, I'll I'll have to adjust things. So it's it's spot on. But, uh, you know, I I think um, like you're saying, that can point to something going wrong on your bow, but for me too, it's just such a difference in temperature and and such a change that I just believe in my setup and believe in it and and move it a yard and then I'm good to go, you know. But um, do you have that as well, where you have to adjust things throughout season? Yeah, oh, definitely. Yep. But like, one of the things it's like for us down here, you know, it's like I said during that August time frame, you really have to pay attention to all those little things because I mean one of the things that I also do is mark the cam to see if there was any movement see if there was any type of string stretch or anything like that I mean it's just little things that you need to pay attention so at the moment of truth you're not like what happened (laughs) you know Yes. Um, yeah, that's a good tip. Marking your cams, uh, marking exactly, you know, with like, I use like a silver pin and I mark my cams right where they're sitting when the bows relax, where the limbs are right there. And so that way you can see if your cams rotate at all or anything. And so, you know, it's just like a, one of those checks that when you're in the backcountry, you can look at those silver marks and everything's spot on and you know, you don't got to worry about anything. 
yeah, I, it's just all about the confidence, you know. If you know that everything is on, then you don't worry about what you, you don't worry about anything else except making the shot. Confidence is deadly walking around, isn't it? Just it is. believing in your setup and believing in your skills and um you know, if you have belief in that and belief you can get it done, it's amazing what comes together, but it, it's the only way to go. If you're gonna wonder whether or not you're gonna make that shot, more times than not you're gonna miss. You know, you have to believe you're gonna make that shot. Yeah, those those shots I in my head it's like, Man, you're dead and the shot goes off and it usually and it hits and that's that's the main thing you got to have the confidence in yourself in the equipment you know and and uh know that that's going to do its job yeah and so you also said that you're running long stabilizers more of a target setup i i also run longer stabilizers than than the average guy as i run a 12 out the front and then i run a, a sidebar 12 inches out the back and like you say you can play with every ounce on the back and front to make that bow react different and then to also make that bow hold different um so you use those for shooting down there as well how long a stabilizers do you use miguel i use uh 10 on the side and 15 out the front. Okay. And uh, it just kind of depends. I, I usually have more weight on the back than I do on the front just because I, I you know, I have a little bit more of a relaxed shot, kind of just let things kind of happen, you know, pull. I, I don't really have a really push-pull. I just kind of have like a more of a static type shot and just kind of get that last little bit and it, so it goes off. And uh, that's worked pretty well for me and, you know, as I have been shooting. Okay. Um, yeah. And, and then, um, so how much weight do you run on yours? Uh, I, I think I'm running seven on the front and 12 on the back. Okay. I think that's what I have. Yep. Yep. I used to run, um, a little bit more on the front than the back. And, uh, lately my bows, they seem to be fairly equal, maybe one more weight on the back, but I, I'm running like, um, yeah, maybe six and six or six and seven, somewhere in there is where I feel comfortable. But, um, yeah, no, and it's wild. Uh, it sure helps the hold of your bow, doesn't it? And you're shooting oh, yeah. at such a small target there, Miguel. Those, those deer are a hundred pounds. Their brisket just is not that big. And, um, so, so you're really focusing and, and concentrating on your hold of trying to get that pin to, to hold right behind that shoulder where you want to hit. Yes. And then, some of the things that that also has helped me out recently is is kind of opposite of what everybody else is doing but i've been using a smaller peep sight and it lets me focus like that front sight stays in better focus for me as as uh, also the deer is in better focus so because i shoot that that smaller peep it kind of makes for a more accurate shot also uh clear I mean, it doesn't starburst on me. I mean, I guess my eyes are, aren't what they used to be, so i got to make up the difference somewhere. <laughs> We're all getting older, right? They, they <laughs> yeah. say that guys' eyes, like, uh, I don't think there's any guys that, I think everybody eventually needs glasses, like your eyes are just getting more tired and worn out, but I'm not looking forward to that. I've always had really good vision, but I can see my dad, he has to get so far away from the newspaper to read it, and other other guys and buddies, you know, that I've had. It seems like it gets everybody, Miguel. Yeah, well, it's, it's coming around my household. <laughs> it's coming for me, too. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, but, yeah, okay, so your peep sight, you're going with a smaller one. Like, how small are you going? I'm not exactly – I can't exactly – I think it's a 116th. Oh, wow. That, that'd be really small. Yeah, you'll have to measure it for me and see. Like I'm running um, – I usually run like a 316th or a 532nd. Now, I, I'm all about matching my peep sight with my aperture so they're the same size when I'm shooting and fit. Do you still match your, your sight uh, no. housing with your aperture or do you center the pin in there? I just center the pin. Oh, okay. Yeah, I just center the pin. It's It's – I, I kind of moved in my sight. I don't have it out that far. Yep. Just kind of where it kind of tuned pretty well for that for that torque tuning. Yes. Plus, the closer in, the more you can get out of the sight. The so, I kind of went that route. But I just centered the the pin inside the peep, and it's worked pretty good. I can still get a the if my pin is centered, I can still see my bubble level. So with that, I'm golden. 
Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, so um, well, and it makes sense with your setup too because you're you're shooting a single pin, and your single right. pin is in the center of your sight, correct? Correct. Yep. And then your bubble is at the bottom. Yes. Yep. Inside the housing, right there. Yes. Okay. Exactly. Good. Well, yeah, that makes good sense. No, that seems like a good system. Yeah, I always try to match it up with my housing, and yeah, there's just like a, two different theories on it, you know, and one is to center the, the site like you do, and then the other one's to center the housing. But yeah, that's really cool. So you've gone to a smaller peep, and that's helped your accuracy. Yes. I mean, I, I also used to do the whole, you know, center the the uh, the the housing, the housing inside the aperture. But I used to get a lot of starburst on my pins. You know, it just kind of – I wasn't able to see my target very well, and uh, I just had to figure something out. You know, I just kind of put the blur on the blur type of thing, and I was still hitting pretty good. But um, I just didn't feel comfortable with that, so I started messing around with, with different peep sites and seeing how some people, especially like – you know, I, I kind of look towards a lot the target archery side and kind of lets me know what I should be doing. As far as trying to make things work, I tried um, a verifier, but I didn't like the whole glass thing inside the peep side just because the elements will get you in a hunting situation. Mm-hmm. But um, you'll see some of these guys that are shooting two, three, maybe even four power, and they just go to a smaller peep site, and that clears it up for them. And that's what I tried, and that's kind of where it worked out for me. Okay. Yeah, it's well it's the it's the direction to look. Those are the best shooters in the world with the equipment that we're using and they they have figured out a way to be accurate shot after shot after shot with precision, you know? And yes. so what those guys do, like it doesn't all like it doesn't transfer completely like you wouldn't see a target bow out hunting for for deer out there, you know, as they're just set up for targets, but still you can take some of that knowledge and and, and you bring some of that knowledge over and it is. It it definitely helps helps accuracy and i think it's finding some middle ground you know between a, a hunting bow with with zero accessories to to the target archery side and it's somewhere in the middle there of finding that mix where you know we're just trying to be as accurate as we can be when we're shooting at a critter yep exactly and that's what it's all about that's where the confidence comes from yes for sure well, um, Miguel, I've had so much fun meeting you and, and uh, picking your brain. I've probably asked you a thousand questions about coos deer since you've known me, but um, I, I always really enjoy talking bow hunting with you. You have so much knowledge uh, about your bow and the shooting and then so much knowledge about spot and stalking, especially that open terrain and those really tough coos deer that you have down there. Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I really think that the tactics that we use down here transfer – quite a bit into other species you know so it's 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 a it's a pretty pretty good learning curve be able to be out here and and hunting these these little wily critters oh i think it translates absolutely 100 percent. and you're proof of that as you harvest those consistently but you've also got you know mule deer that you've harvested elk pronghorn you know you you, you're talking about bringing your big eyes for blacktails in California, and uh, you, you're going up for mule deer in Utah. So you're hunting all over, and, and uh, you're definitely the proof of that. Is uh, it seems like you find success everywhere you go with your bow. So super impressive, Miguel. Um, yeah, I, I really appreciate your friendship and appreciate you being on the podcast. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me on. Yep. All right, that's a wrap. Another podcast in the books. Um. Really fun to get Miguel on the on the podcast. He's so knowledgeable about spot and stalking and about shooting, and um, he he just takes his he takes his archery to the next level. Uh, like that that tip about his arrows and and how not only does he cut both the fronts and the backs, he spins every arrow to find the the best spine and the best cut off each arrow. Um, but yeah, he, he really pays attention to detail. Uh, he's really got it figured out for, for not only down South on, on coos deer and mule deer and elk, but, but all through the lower 48, you know, he's, he's applying for tags and it, the, his spot and stock tactics, uh, they translate to all other Western hunting, but, uh, just a, a great guy and a, a heck of a hunter. So thanks to Miguel for being on Uh sponsor for today's show is Onyx maps. Again, you guys, this this tool is priceless. Uh, using this Onyx Maps on my phone, the app they have, um, I get the 
um, all 50 states on there so I can look at every different state. I use it for scouting. I use it in real time. I use it to keep me legal on public and private. Um, I don't, I don't know if I could go back to the olden days where I hunt without this app. Uh, it, it's absolutely life-changing for, for a backcountry bow hunter. So thanks for, to Onyx Maps for sponsoring the show. And, uh, with that, yeah, we'll wrap this up, uh, in the heart of bear season right now. It's been fun. I got, uh, my buddy Dan came down today, so we're going to team up for the next few days. Uh, got to get a little bit of work done in the mornings, but, uh, we'll put Dan to work and then we can get out for the afternoon evenings, but it's just getting ready to turn on. I, um, we're just starting to get that green grass and I'm seeing tracks at, at different elevations, but, uh, just yet to see them key in on that green grass, but I think it's coming this week or this weekend. So, um, we're ready to hit it hard and put on some good miles and find some good vantage points and see if we can't kill one of those big Bruins, uh, or maybe a couple of them, you never know. But, uh, yeah, it's just fun. It's fun to have a hunting season here and, and, uh, in my free time or when I get a free evening to be able to go and chase these things around. So, um, yeah, I'm excited, still getting in my runs, getting my dog out. Uh, you know, if, if I'm not hunting then I'm getting in a run and, and definitely working, uh, shooting that bow and, and, uh, just improving my skills, getting ready for season. Uh, I want to be shooting really good for Hawaii this year. And then, um, yeah, just be shooting off the hook for fall. You, you can't be too good of a shot. You can't, you know, maybe you could practice too much, but I don't know. You just, um, working with that bow every night and sessions at different distances and positions, and then really fine tuning it. You know, and I was mistake I was making as I was shooting, you know, a lot of old arrows for practice arrows, you know, just because I was yeah, maybe too lazy to refletch them or you just figure, you know, you got a little rip in your fletching here or there and you just figure, oh, it's okay or a little bit wobbly and you're shooting field points, but I just culled all those arrows. And like, if you're not shooting proficiently and, and accurately with your practice arrows, it's not going to give you confidence in the field and especially practicing at these longer distances and you know, like the old days when you had an aluminum arrow, if you had one bent and you kept shooting it, it'd mess up every group that you had. Every group that you had would be a, a, a big group and you just have to cull those bad arrows and, and shoot only, you know, perfect arrows like you'd be shooting in the field, shooting a lot of broadheads. And, and uh, so anyways, just spending a lot of time with my bow, fine tuning it. And I just can't wait for, for season. I guess we are in season. Can't wait to get in front of a bear and, and try to send an arrow into him. But I've been talking for long enough. Let's wrap this up. Um, thanks a bunch, you guys, for the support. Uh, that those iTunes reviews, um, those really help out the podcast, you guys. It just brings weight to them. We get a lot of our downloads from from iTunes. And so having those reviews on there for guys to look at and, and also the more reviews you get, the, the more they push your podcast. So thanks to you guys for leaving reviews on there and all the support on social media and that. So um, have a good week. Keep working hard towards your goals. And I'll, uh, I'll check in with you next week with a new podcast.